From the Economic Hardship Reporting Project and The Nation, this is Going for Broke. I'm Ray Suarez. This series comes from a very basic idea, that in the United States, when we talk about poverty, when we talk about economic struggle, poor people, people on the margins, people not succeeding in the modern economy, those people are talked about, but very rarely get the chance to talk for themselves. Here on Going for Broke, they do. We bring you stories of Americans living on the edge, followed by conversations about the issues they face and the solutions that give us hope. And now it's my turn. It feels funny saying it, because reporters shy away from making themselves the story, and frankly, I never thought I would be telling a story of financial insecurity or job loss. But here I am. I'm going to tell you about how the wheels came off my career in my late 50s, and why, and talk about what we can do as a society to make sure older workers aren't pushed into precariousness. I've been a journalist of one kind or another all of my adult life. Radio, television, books, newspapers. Ray Suarez has the second in our new series. My guest Ray Suarez is the host of the NPR interview and phone-in program, Talk of the Nation. Friday morning brought a new barrage of shelling in the city of Holmes. I wanted to be a reporter since I was a kid. I grew up in an aging and not very well-maintained apartment building in Brooklyn. The heat was dodgy in the winter. The windows were crap. We had a great, intact, nurturing, wonderful family, but materially... We weren't any great shakes. We did okay. I didn't miss any meals, but it wasn't great. Becoming a reporter seemed like one way of getting out, and it worked. One fly in the ointment was that even in New York, when I was growing up in the 60s and 70s, very few Puerto Ricans made it into mainstream media. There were few people I could look to and say, well, see, there's that guy, so I could do this. One exception for three decades as a street reporter, was J.J. Gonzalez at WCBS. It's hoped more of that enthusiasm and pride will keep the Bed-Stuy Renaissance going full steam ahead. J.J. Gonzalez, Channel 2 News. As I got older and began to understand what breaking in would be like, I realized, with talent or not, it would require a certain amount of struggle, having to prove that I belonged. When I was a desk assistant at one of the networks in the 1970s and I looked across the newsroom, it was just a sea of white guys in white shirts named Dick and Bob. And we were in one of the capitals of Latino America, New York. Outside our door on the Upper West Side, there were millions. But inside, working in any capacity, there were just two Puerto Ricans and we were at the lowest rung on the ladder. I wonder, in retrospect, whether anybody thought anything was going to become of us. I went on and had my career. The other guy did not flourish and prosper in the news business. He ended up suing the network and getting a sizable settlement for failure to hire and promote. And he used that money to go to law school and ended up doing labor law. New York was in terrible economic decline during my formative years. 
And that built in a wariness about unemployment, about job insecurity. Whatever the market conditions, I figured, I needed to work. I needed to be sure I could support my family. Long before it was the norm, I worked in multiple media simultaneously. TV, radio, print, so I could always have a job. For decades, it worked, and I steadily climbed the greasy pole. pressure on China to cooperate. Ray Suarez reports from the talks in Copenhagen, Denmark. When Secretary of State Clinton arrived in Copenhagen today, she said the U.S. wanted to reach here with two top journalists, Ray Suarez, host of Al Jazeera America's daily news program. By 2016, in my late 50s, I was finally hosting my own TV show, pre-exposure prophylaxis and preventing the spread of HIV, making terrific money, working with a great crew on a great set, and hoping to be on the air for a long time. My employer. Al Jazeera America went out of business, a calamitous collapse into an ocean of red ink. Al Jazeera America has announced that they're shutting down in April. The news came rather abruptly at an all-staff meeting. The channel and for the first time in over 30 years, I was out of work. I wasn't worried. I'd been at the PBS NewsHour for 14 years. I'd hosted a hit national radio show for six and a half years before that. I'd written three critically acclaimed books. I thought, well, I'll find something. But then came the reality of too many unaccepted phone calls, too many slammed doors, too much disingenuousness from too many people who said, oh, don't worry, you'll find something. What do you have to worry about? And then wouldn't talk to me. It was a tough year after that. But, you know, in a funny way, I just thought, having covered workforce issues, having covered unemployment... One of the rules of thumb was the higher your salary, the longer it takes to find a new job. I was completely aware it was unlikely I would get a job at my old pay. I had lived below my means for a long time in order to prepare for retirement and get my kids through college. So it was second nature. The warning said it was going to take a long time, and that was okay. You're not going to make the money you did before, and that's okay, too. Even with my clear-eyed view of what to expect, nothing prepared me for what really happened. I couldn't get arrested. In the grim and graphic saying of my childhood neighborhood, nobody would piss on me if I was on fire. And I was stunned, and slowly realized how much of a handicap age was going to be. My experience didn't matter. My knowledge didn't matter. Even the good reputation I had built over decades didn't matter. And it didn't hit me all at once, like a thunderbolt. It was more like a slow-motion collapse. But once you realize it, it's a pretty profound shock. And remember, this is at a time when everyone in journalism was saying, we have to diversify, we have to find people of different backgrounds to work in our newsroom. And probably one of the best-known national Latino broadcasters working in English language in the United States was available for anything, open to new things. None of it mattered. I realized a certain paternalism was built into the DNA of the newsrooms I was trying to break back into, and that to the hiring managers I was dealing with, Latino means young. I beat the bushes, I freelanced, an unexpected lifeline came in the form of a visiting professor's job at Amherst College. It was a joy. But there was a problem. I started feeling terrible. 
I assumed it was the stress, I dragged myself through the year, sleepless, fatigued, low energy. The following summer, it's now 2018, I was diagnosed with cancer. Getting sick brought in a dark second front. You know when you're walking along and you look at one side of the sky and it's bright and the sun is up and you can see blue and then you turn around and it's totally black in the other direction? You know something terrible is moving in. Well, getting sick on top of already struggling to find work meant that every part of the sky that I looked in was black. It's funny the way the two things, the career decline and the illness, spoke to each other. They affected me in different ways, and yet they were interrelated. They had a dialogue. The self and the body had a long conversation as I sat chemoed out on the couch, unable to do very much. I hardly told anybody. I was very selective about who I told I had cancer, because I was really afraid, given the ageism and the dismissal I'd already encountered, that employers would really steer clear. I was still years away from Medicare. I'm still years away from when I planned to take Social Security. I'm still years from when I wanted to tap into my retirement savings. And I couldn't work. Thank God I paid off the house. We could still live a bit of our old lives, my wife and I, as we figured out what the next life was going to be like. And this is where I'd like to bring Alyssa Quart, Executive Director of the Economic Hardship Reporting Project, into the conversation. Alyssa, you know a thing or two about this landscape, the one I found myself in? Yes, absolutely. And if it can happen to you, you're obviously a a legendary public broadcaster. It can happen to anyone, any journalist. But let's parse out what happened to you, because there's several interlocking strands or paradigms that made this happen. I mean, one of them is what uh, we call nowadays, in some circles, the media extinction event, which is just the reduction of independent reporters and staff reporters in this country, starting in the late 90s, early noughts, and, and accelerating now in the pandemic. And just like the dinosaurs, when we looked up and saw the comet, we just didn't know that it was coming for us. Uh, Newspapers go to the graveyard monthly. More and more magazines have actually reincorporated as not-for-profit entities. When you think about this massive, ever-flowing river of content, it's actually made by fewer full-time employees than worked in the business 20 years ago. So we're doing more with fewer people. There is more built-in precarity. There is a greater built-in expectation that you won't be able to do this as a way of life, as a living from the beginning of your career all the way to the end. It's a tough time and especially a tough time to hang on when bosses are looking every moment at the bottom line. Yeah, I mean, there's something like 27,000 journalists lost their jobs, and these are people who actually had jobs during the pandemic period. And that was, there's something like a 45% shrinkage of newsrooms between 2005 and 2014. So this is just layer upon layer. And, you know, before you start saying, oh, this is, uh, you know, we're, we're media types mooning about other media types, 
Some of this is also just about age in general. And I reported that in my book, Squeezed. I found that older folks who are being pushed out of the job market, often middle-class older folks, trying to retrain, spending a lot on certificate programs, colleges, graduate schools, and still not making more or not getting another job, and then also paying for their kids' education. So that's something I saw a lot of. And that's why we have something like 1.7 trillion student loan debt, uh, with 17% of it belonging to people over 50 years old. The numbers are shocking. And, you know, when college has gone up both on the public side and on the private side, something like a 1,000% over the last 30 years. And you're in that generational squeeze where you're also looking out for elderly parents trying to prepare for your own retirement and now on the hook for your own kids' college debt, if not, as you mentioned, uh, for the retraining and upskilling that you paid out of your own pocket to do and right now isn't paying much in the way of dividends. It's a terrible situation for older workers. So people lose jobs, they're furloughed, they lose what I call, they lose the narrative of their lives as well, right? There's an existential dimension. And then you can add illness onto it. You can add disability onto it. In your case, you got sick. Yeah. And that was one of those moments where you really start to think, wow, the compounding of my troubles. Well, maybe I really am done. I mean, done for my career, but also done in a much more, (laughs) in a much more existential way. Uh, I'm fine now and I'm doing well physically and in, in, very good shape, but those moments dent you, scratch you up, uh, beat you up in ways that are hard to assess once it's all over. So, okay, so you're still looking for work. So this is a moment, this is a juncture that we could start thinking, what are real solutions? Well, Alyssa, if you think about it, so many of the protections that we say we build around the individual citizen are either directly tied to employment or, in practice, heavily embedded in employment, whether it's going on disability or collecting unemployment insurance or um, paying into a company health insurance plan. Uh, Many employee benefits packages even include life insurance uh, that often uh, operates as a multiple of your annual income. So at least there's some cushion for your family if uh, you die. But all of these things are associated with employment. Now, it's not that they're impossible to acquire if you're self-employed. It's not that they're impossible to buy on the open market. It's just that some of the market devices that we use to make the numbers work, to keep you solvent and keep you earning a living and also keep you providing these protections for yourself come through regular employment for an employer. In our field, in journalism, one thing I think that would be great that's coming back into vogue is a federal writer's project. Originally, that was a program of the WPA in 1935, part of the New Deal response to the Great Depression. You're listening to The Takeaway. I'm Sarah Gonzalez in for Tanzina Vega. 
Earlier this month, Congressman Ted Lieu of California introduced a bill that would create a 21st century federal writers project inspired by the Federal Writers Project. The original Federal Writers Project supported something like 7,000 writers, editors, researchers, and they did oral histories. Uh, My name is Zora Neale Hurston, and uh, I'm going to sing a gambling song. Uh, that I collected at Boswick, Florida. That's the term time. The term and time in our field, this is how we might do a bailout <laughs> of the journalism industry. Another- and more shops are unionizing. So I don't go more than a couple of weeks at a time without seeing a new newsroom that has formed uh, an association, is now affiliating with a larger union, sometimes in a different industry altogether. Now, this isn't some shabby regional production of Waiting for Lefty. This is uh, people getting together to speak to their employers with a unified voice, but also to be able to acquire some of these benefits that I've been talking about in an organized, pooled way, which as an individual contractor, it's just really hard. So it makes all the sense in the world if you're a journalist to join one of these new unions. So how does this change you? How you think about being a, being a middle-class person and about being American, about the stories you wrote? Did people write back to you? Ray wrote a very uh, searing first-person piece in the Washington Post about what happened to him after he lost his job and what's happening to journalists in general. And it went very viral. So I wonder, like, did people you knew come out of the woodwork and say, this is me, or... What was the response? The response was fascinating. It was like a macro Rorschach blot uh, where I got back sympathetic responses. I got back uh, lovely notes uh, from people who had enjoyed my work and valued my work over the years on radio, television, people who've read my books, and angry, invective-filled, judgmental, Letters from people who were clearly some of the walking wounded, some of the fellow disappointed, uh, some of the people who were suffering some of these same downdrafts who couldn't find it in themselves to be at all sympathetic and, f- and instead assumed that a lot of this were, uh, was a problem of my own making. This is part of the sort of culture of blame. And if we're trying to find a solution, Ray, that's not just policy, but is around messaging and the ways that people think about themselves and narratives they tell about themselves in this country. I think one of the most toxic ones, the one that we need to PSAs and like whole campaigns about is against bootstrapping, against this idea that everybody's to blame for their own economic condition. That, I mean, this is a towns and cities in this country don't have garbage pickup unless you hire a company. I mean, there's the infrastructure is so tattered. And yet there's this narrative that we're all supposed to be doing very well. And financially is how we're measuring that on our own without any assistance from our government. And I think to me, one of the biggest solutions would be serious campaign against that to open people's eyes to the way that we've been conditioned to not think of our quality of life, to blame each other, to blame ourselves and to not really help each other. And um, what I'm hoping is the legacy of the pandemic will be more mutual aids and more workers cooperatives and more assistance that when people are in trouble medically in their communities or need help 
their neighbors will show up. So at least there'll be that. But that starts with people stopping blaming each other. Well, thank you. And it's really been a privilege and a joy to be associated with the Economic Hardship Reporting Project because its multiple missions are right on time. They answer some of the existing problems, not only in the news business, but in the wider society. So thank you for that. Oh, thank you so much, Ray. Going for Broke comes to you from the Economic Hardship Reporting Project and The Nation. Our producer is Jeb Sharp, mixing and sound design by Tina Toby Mack. Our executive producers are Alyssa Quart and David Wallace. Frank Reynolds is multimedia editor at The Nation. The Nation's editor is D.D. Guttenplan. I'm Ray Suarez. Thanks for listening. Please tell your friends about us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit thenation.com slash podcasts to learn more. Sign up for EHRP's newsletter at economichardship.org.